of status that they had that was perceived in that society, the hierarchy of, of money and education and these kinds of things, of, of name and of property and of wealth. And he says to them, you know, when you think about the world, you know, the world is divided up between those that have and those that have not, those that have the right skin color and those that don't, those that have status and those that don't. But in the church, regardless of what you have, the two men have been made one because the wall of enmity, the thing that keeps them apart, the thing that makes them angry towards each other or fearful towards each other, but the thing that keeps them apart has been knocked down by the cross of Jesus. That all of us are trophies of God's grace. That none of us are saved by our own merit, but by God's grace. He, he will say in Romans that you know, the problem with the sin there is that we've not realized that we've been buried, we've participated in that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at our baptism. And then he goes on from the second chapter of, you know, from saying in Ephesians that you know, the, the two have become one to the third chapter where he says, you know, I want you to know that I'm in chains because of the mystery of the gospel. And that mystery is what's happening in the church, that the gospel is unifying everything that, that sin has separated and driven apart. And that when the, the, the powers, the, the evil powers, the principalities and spiritual powers of darkness, when they look at the church, what they see is the gospel and their defeat. That their work of undoing God's creation has been undone and things are being reversed back to the way they are supposed to be as everything comes together in the gospel. And that's what they see in the church. Men and women knowing how to relate to each other in godly ways. Rich and poor, Greek and, 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 and Gentile with, with Jewish Orthodox Jewish people with, with dietary laws, learning how to live gracefully with one another. And you know, one of the most practical ways to see how that happens, that is sort of the, 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 uh, the, the beginning point of seeing how all of that works comes out of John chapter 9. There you have Jesus who's walking along one day in the verse, first verse, and he sees a man blind from birth. And notice what the disciples, you know, they're, they're going by. They see the same thing that Jesus sees. And they have a question. They have this really theological, deep, burning theological question. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so as they're going along, you know the story. They see this guy that has been born blind. And according to their understanding of the way things work spiritually in the world, somebody had to sin in order for this man to be born blind. Was it his parents or was it something that he did? And Jesus says, verse 3, it's neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so the world kind of broke down for the disciples as those who were sinners and those who were not. They see this man who was born blind, and they want to know who sinned, this man or his parents. Jesus says, neither one. It's so that the work of God might be seen in him. And so you know the story. He he spits a little on the ground. He makes some clay out of the spittle. He applies that clay to his eyes. And then he sends the man to the pool of Siloam, which means sent, to wash. And he does. And he comes back seeing. Now, notice in verse 8, here are these neighbors who, uh, John tells us, had previously seen this man as a beggar. And they're saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And so sort of like the disciples who see as a sinner, these neighbors see a beggar. They're walking along uh, every day, going to work, going to the marketplace, going home, going to see friends, going to socialize. And here's this man who's blind, and they want to know, 
You know, is this the guy that's now seeing and saying he can't see? Is this the guy that we should see beg? And some said, no, it's like him. And others said, you know, yes, it is. And the man himself said, I'm the one. So verse 10, they, they, they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And, and he tells them. But nobody can kind of come to any kind of conclusion on what's happening with this guy. Now the disciples see a sinner, the, the neighbors see a beggar. Well, what are we going to do to solve this problem? Well, they take him in verse 13 to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and they ask him, you know, what's going on? Or they ask them, what's going on here? Now John gives us this little footnote here in verse 14 that says, now it was a Sabbath on the day in which Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now you know as well as I do that the, that the Pharisees were holy people and they were trying to understand how to live a holy life and unfortunately what they did is they began to create this hedge, this fence, this big wall around the, the commandments of God in order if they never went over that wall or went through that hedge, they would never transgress the actual commandment of God. But then all of a sudden all of those things became as important as the Word of God itself. And the Sabbath, what you could and could not do, what constituted work, what, what, what you could do in terms of uh, preparing food, and how far you could walk, and you know, what, what you could do to save an animal as opposed to save a human being, all of that was legislated in Talmud. And the Pharisees knew that well, making clay, that sounds like work to us. And so verse 15, they asked this fellow how he received his sight. He said, you know, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see." Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now think about where your mind has to be religiously to see a bona fide miracle in front of you and then you're going to be debating over a, some, 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 some matter of, of oral tradition. But others kept saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, they go to the blind man again and they say, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes and he said, I think he's a prophet. And the Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received his sight. This couldn't have been... Nobody who is from God who would break the Sabbath could be able to do this. So what do they do? They call his parents. And his parents come. And so you've got this man standing in front of his parents now. And there are the disciples who said, hey, this, who sinned? This man's a sinner. Who sinned? This man or his parents? He was born blind. Then you have the neighbors who see a beggar. And now you have the Pharisees going, man, that's a tremendous religious question. And now he's standing in front of his parents. And they said, verse 19, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now at first that kind of sounds like the logical thing. I mean, we weren't there, we don't know. We're telling you the truth. He is our son. And we do know he's born blind because he's lived with us all of his life. We're the ones that helped him get dressed. We're the ones that put him on the corner to help him you know, get set up for begging. How this happened, we don't know. But they're not really rejoicing at the fact that their son, who they identify as their son, and who they identified as their son who was born blind, they're not really rejoicing that he now sees. Now why would that be? Well, John gives us another one of these little statements. This is verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, the parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So you got disciples of Jesus. 
Is this man a sinner or not? You've got the neighbors seeing the same man. Is he a beggar? Is, is this the beggar? Then you've got the Pharisees who are going, what is this deal with you know, the Sabbath? They see this man as a religious debate. And then there are the parents who are asked, is this your son? They say yes, but they will not tell the, the, the whole truth about it in the sense of rejoicing that their son can see because they're afraid that they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue if they say it must have been the Christ who did it. So verse 24, a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I what? See. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, you did not listen why do you want to hear it again? You do, do you want to become his disciples too, do you? And in verse 28, they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears Him. And since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born entirely in sin. And are you teaching us? And they put him out. What a horrible story. Disciples seeing a sinner, neighbor seeing a beggar, the religious leader, the Pharisees seeing this, 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 this religious debate, his parents out of fear seeing a threat to their social status, standing in front of a man who said, you know, I was born blind. That I do know, and now I see. The key, I think, in this entire verse is verse 1. As he passed by, Jesus saw a what? A man. He saw a man blind, but he saw a man. He saw a man blind from birth, but he saw a man. And you know what the difference is? Because he was able to see a man, sure, a man with, that was born blind, a man that was, with, you know, had had the effects of a fallen world on him like everybody else did. But because he was able to see a man, the work of God was being able to be done on this, was, was able to be done on this man. And you see, that's really the problem with, with labeling and categorizing and elitism and racism and all of these different ways that we human beings, you know, living in a world of diversity, not understanding the cross, try to keep the world safe and manageable by, by being able to label and categorize and corral people in different ways so that if we're uncomfortable, we don't have to be close to them. And if, they, if there's somebody that, that, that can give us something, some status, some, some, some meaning, some significance in our lives, then we, then we can try to be close to them. But the, the, the problem is that when we label and categorize people like that, you know what we're doing? We're fencing off, especially when we do this as a church, what we're doing is we're fencing out the possibility of God's work being done in somebody's life.
Labeling is a problem for all people. Labeling is a problem for all people. We, we identify not as, a lot of times, not as God's people, but as my people, the people that are like me. And in so doing, we, we, we build up walls that keep God's Word from God's work, from, from God's grace, from the Gospel being able to, 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 be, to, to be dispersed in such a way that it falls upon people, sometimes the most unlikely people in the community, the most unlikely individual, the person outside of our box of imagination being susceptible or, 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 or open to the Gospel coming into their life and changing them forever. And the easy way to think about this passage is that it's always about the poor person or it's about the homeless person or the dispossessed person. But a lot of times the reverse. Sometimes we believe that the most wealthy or the most influential or the person with the greatest education in our community, these are the people that somehow, and we label them as such, has somehow made themselves closed off to the gospel in some way. And and the, you know, the, the way that Jesus reverses all of that and allows this person to come into, into the work of God and to come into the activity of God in that community on that day began by him seeing a person, an individual, a human, an icon of God. The Greek word in the Septuagint for the image of God is somebody that's an icon and, and the image, an image bearer of God is by seeing them as, as, a, as a person who has fallen and seeing them as a human being who is to be uh, uh, given the opportunity to hear and to understand and to be affected and to experience the work of God in their life. It's racism. And it's, 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 it's elitism. And it's, 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 it's a matter of who has education and it's a matter of who has the wealth and it any way that we can conjure up in order to separate ourselves from people not only makes makes it nearly impossible for that gospel to work through that kind of prejudice and that kind of bias that kind of categorizing to get to a person to change them forever but it also thwarts the effect of the gospel in the community which is where everybody else is spreading apart because of differences and because of prejudices, and because of misunderstandings or misperceptions about how the, the, the difference somebody might, uh, might possess, how that might be a danger to me or a threat to me or makes me fearful of them, then what happens is that becomes the rule of the day and not the gospel work of drawing people together. Instead, we're continuing to do the work of darkness by separating people out. That's, that's the problem in John chapter 9. What happens in the book of Revelation is that uh, John is on the island of Patmos. And there's this revelation that comes and you know, John's wondering about you know, what, what, the, what the world is going to become like and he's, he's thinking about you know, maybe you know, his reunion with Jesus. I, he's, but in the Lord's day, he's in the Spirit. And he receives a revelation by way of God through Jesus and, a, and an angel, and he writes it down, and we have it at the end of our Bibles. And chapter 2 and chapter 3 are really about a message, a beginning message to the church. And the first one mentioned is Ephesus. 
And to me, what is written to the church in Ephesus is, is really one of the most frightening things that you'll ever find in the Bible. Because, you know, Jesus is, is speaking to John through these writings, and he says to the church in Ephesus, you know, there are all of these things that you get right. I mean, you understand right doctrine. You understand how to tell the difference between somebody who is false and, and, and somebody who has a true understanding of what the gospel is all about, and, and you're to be commended for that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing I have against you. You have fallen from your first love. Now, I, I, you know, I know that a lot of the commentators you know, talk about how you know, they have fallen away from Jesus somehow. I, I don't really go in that direction because if they've really fallen from Jesus, they wouldn't give you know, a snap of the finger about who was right and who was wrong when it came to doctrinal matters. It wouldn't matter. But they do care about Jesus. But what has happened is that they care about Jesus in such a way that somehow it begins to create some, some disturbances in the church, disturbances that had been there before when Paul had written to him and said, what in the world is going on? Don't you understand that when people look at the church, they are to see one, not the many. They are to see a family, not, not different groups and, and schisms and factions. They are to see a group of people who understand that they're trophies of God's grace. They, when they look at the church, they're to see people who are male and female and Jew and Greek who have been tied together because of the cross of Jesus and they understand that it's not by their own merit what they've gained, what they're able to do, what they're able to conjure up between their two ears or their two hands, but it's by the gift of God's grace so that He gets the glory. And that wall of enmity, all of those separating walls have been knocked down by the cross so that we can be one body. And maybe they got a hold of that and they got it right, but at some point they got it wrong again. And so Jesus says to them by way of John in this letter in the second chapter of Revelation, He says to them, you need to repent for not having that kind of love, that love for each other that they had initially. And if you don't, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. And basically what I understand John's words to be saying is that a church that refuses to love, a church that refuses to, to, to be united in love, and the model of, of, of the cross where God travels all of this distance to become man in the flesh and to die that horrible death on the cross, the brutal way, and to experience every bad thing that you and I have ever experienced, not only to, to, to understand us and to identify us, but to lead us through to the other side. A church that refuses to allow the gospel of Jesus and the work of the cross to work its way into a loving community where we understand that we are all lost, but we're all saved. And we come from different families, but we're all brothers and we're all sisters because of the gospel. A church that is unwilling to allow that to happen will cease to be blessed by God as a church. Paul will write to Timothy and he'll say to him, you know, you need to get all this doctrine stuff right. You know, anybody that tells you that doctrine is not important, that doctrine is boring, that doctrine is, you know, is, is that, that's dangerous, those are dangerous words. Because doctrine just does form the way that we think, and the way we think does form the way that we live. And doctrine is to be lived out. And Paul says the goal of this doctrine, the goal of this teaching, is love. And guess where Timothy was? Ephesus. So what do we do? 
one of the things I think that we pray for as a church is, to, is, is when we leave this place, understanding the gospel, the, the, the levels of meaning that are in the gospel, the levels of change that are to be brought about in human beings because of the gospel impacting their heart. We leave this place praying to God that every day we see people. They might be Mexican, African American, they might be gringo, they might be brasileiros, they might be Brazilians, they might be uh, somebody from, from the Asian part of the world, but they are people created in the image of God. And as we begin to see them as such, not as rich, poor, but people who bear that image of God, who live in a fallen world, the greatest thing that we can share with them is, is not just our lives and not just our love, but that gospel. Because in so doing, in seeing people as, as Jesus did, as a man, sure, born blind, struggling, begging on the side of the road, but a man nonetheless, in, in being able to see that, what we do is we begin to open up the door for God to use us as conduits of the gospel being spread throughout the community. You know, the bottom line is, is that, you know, when you think about the way that God works, you know, He dispersed all of Israel through, through Assyria and Babylon, and that's where the synagogues began, and the synagogues began to influence the community in order for there to be God-fears, and then the Greeks came along and gave the world one language, and then the Romans came along and built roads everywhere and produced a peace that the world had never known, and then all of a sudden Jesus of Nazareth is born in, in the fullness of time and he dies on the cross and three days later he is resurrected and he incredibly revolutionizes you know, the lives of those disciples and they are apostles. They are sent throughout that entire world. And who are the ones who are most receptive to the gospel? So God fears that for hundreds of years God had been cultivating the the the, the, the land with the synagogues and then later with the one language, the Greek language, and then making it accessible to everybody at every place and safe to travel because of the, the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the next thing you know, Christianity spreads like wildflower, wildflowers. I hope like wildflowers after a big rainstorm in the spring, right? Like wildfire, like wildfire throughout the world. Can you imagine what 1,100 people with love in their hearts from every corner of Bear County and, and Comal County and Guadalupe County and all of these counties, Alamo Heights and San Antonio and Sherrods and Selma and Halotus and Lavernia. Can you imagine what God can do with people who have that kind of vision and that kind of love in their heart in this kind of community when they see people as the potential place for God's grace to reside? begins by seeing a man and a woman as images of God. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there's any way that we can minister to you tonight, you know, tonight is the night for that to happen. I mean, why wait? Why suffer any longer, right? I mean, why, why be desperate any longer? Why worry any longer? Why, why be anxious any longer? When What can happen tonight is all of that can be removed from you as you become a recipient of God's grace. Your sins are going to be washed away. You can make a decision that your life is going to go in the direction of God tonight. And you can do that by confessing that Jesus is Lord. He is your King. He's not just your Savior, but He's your King. And He's going to direct your steps and direct your mind. And He's going to form your life. 
And from this point on, you can live that life full of peace and inexpressible joy, developing into the kind of person that God always wanted you to be. The kind of person that that shows the greatness of His grace and experiences it on a daily basis. That describes you tonight. A couple of our shepherds are going to be right down here at the front. While Jeff is leading us in the song and we're standing and singing it, come down and talk to him about what's on your heart. And let's do it tonight as we stand and sing together.